turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 31 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pews in front of you that you can use. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Verses 31 through 37. ¿Cuántos de los miembros de esta iglesia han visitado a un brujo? That is the question that I asked uh, a group of believers who were gathered together one Sunday morning in a small village named Yurimaguas in the jungles of Peru. The question that I asked them was, how many people here this morning have visited a witch doctor? That's a strange question for us to consider. But it was not a strange question for these Peruvians to hear me ask them. Yurimaguas was a strange place. It was smack dab in the middle of the jungle. Actually, it is smack dab in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Yet, it's located in such a place that it's part of a very important commerce route which allows it to have some certain amenities like high-speed internet, even though they don't basically have drinkable, uh, potable water, nor do they have electricity that's reliable enough to allow them to be able to consistently use the internet. In Yurimaguas, you can buy antibiotics at any of one of their farmacias, their pharmacies, that are on almost every single street corner. And so I found it strange when I realized that many of my Peruvian neighbors were going to visit witch doctors. If you go into Yurimaguas or any of the villages surrounding Yurimaguas or anywhere in that jungle region, you'll see people walking around with purple stuff all over their body. I didn't know what it was, and so I asked, and they said it's called Violeta. Violeta is something that the brujo, the witch doctor, would place on the body part that was ailing whatever individual had the ailment. And I thought it was strange as I figured out what it was to see the violeta on various body parts of members of the church there in Yurimaguas. After I learned about what it was and after seeing it on the brothers and sisters in the church, I asked, why do these Christian people have violeta on them? And they said, it's not at all uncommon for many of these Christians to go to witch doctors. Some of the reasons why people would go to witch doctors were innocent enough. If a mother had a baby that was really sick, high fever, and the doctor said, eh, we can't really do anything for you, you know, just let the baby work through it. The mother would be anxious and nervous, and she would just pursue any route she could to uh, find a remedy for the baby, including going to the brujo. Some of the brujos also weren't really witch doctors in the way that we think about it. They were kind of just homeopathic gurus, just of the jungle variety. They believed in using natural medicine and things of the earth in order to bring about healing. But some of them were interested in magic. And some of them believed 
that there were spiritual forces at work in the illnesses of these people. And so they used the spirit world and their supposed magical powers to try to invoke healing in these people, to bring about healing in their patients. Now, lest you be too quick to judge the people who practiced this and the people who went to the brujos, you should know that I have a neighbor who lives right down the street from me who believes that her masseuse can realign her chakra. Such beliefs about healing and the natural elements are not just unique to the jungles of Peru or the suburbs of Brooklyn. In ancient Palestine, the Jews and the Gentiles alike believed that spit had certain magical healing properties. More than that, the one to administer the spit for healing was typically the Palestinian equivalent of the Amazonian brujo or the Amazonian witch doctor. It was their version of a miracle worker. And it's exactly this kind of person that the inhabitants of the Decapolis perceive Jesus to be as he enters back into their region. You remember, this is not the first time that Jesus has come into the Decapolis. He was here earlier in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus crossed over there into the Decapolis where he encountered a demon-possessed man who was cutting himself with rocks and screaming all night and all day and who was living amongst the dead. Afterwards, after Jesus healed him, he sent the demons into a herd of pigs which then ran off, off the cliff to their death. And there were two results of Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis last time he was there. The first result is that everyone begged him to leave. I mean, they didn't know what to think about this guy. They didn't understand his power. They had experienced significant economic loss. So they didn't, whatever Jesus was, they didn't like him. So they asked him to just pack his things and go. Well, the second thing that happened due to Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis was that he commissioned his very first missionary. Everywhere that Jesus had gone up to this point in the book of Mark, he was telling everyone to be silent after he healed them. He was telling them not to say anything about his healing. But then after he cast the demon out of this man, this legion demon, he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so it's very possible that the positive reception that Jesus is going to receive in today's account in the region of the Decapolis is because the man that he sent out as a missionary was faithful to obey Jesus' command. Chapter 5, verse 20 says this, He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And it was right that they marveled. This was the man who couldn't be chained. This was the man who lived amongst dead people. This was the man who cut himself with rocks, crying out in agony wherever he went. This man was famous for his hopelessness. I think many of us know people like that in our own lives. They are famous for their hopelessness. But then Jesus was made famous because of the hope that he gave this man. And everyone saw this hopeless man given hope and turned into a new creature. And so now as Jesus re-enters the Decapolis, as he re-enters the land where this miracle took place, it's no wonder that the people immediately seek him out for his power. But do they understand his power? 
do they know who Jesus is? Do they have a right understanding of what He's offering them? Or do they merely see Him as just another miracle worker? Maybe even the best miracle worker, but a miracle worker nonetheless. Well, let's read the text together and find out. 7.31-37. through 37. Then He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more that he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? What's particularly interesting about today's text is that Jesus does something here that he doesn't really do anywhere else. He uses spit as part of his healing process. Typically when Jesus heals, he simply speaks. He commands. And his speaking is his doing. At other times, Jesus doesn't even have to say anything at all. Like the time that the woman with the blood disease who came up behind Jesus and touched him basically without his consent. So the question we find ourselves asking is this. Why does Jesus use spit here? I mean, if Jesus encounters a man possessed with a demon, he merely commands the demon to leave and the demon leaves. If Jesus encounters a person with a withered hand or with leprosy, he merely speaks and that person is healed. Why today the touching and the spit and the big dramatic act Well, I think there are only two real possibilities, especially as it relates to the spit. The first possibility is that Jesus actually believed that there were magical properties in spit. That Jesus actually believed that saliva had healing abilities. Well, obviously, I think this is probably the most unlikely option. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, we saw Jesus heal a leper. We saw Jesus heal a person with a withered hand. We saw Jesus heal a woman with a chronic disease. We've also seen him speak to the sea and calm it. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him feed 5,000 people with a couple scraps of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. And we can't forget about the most monumental miracle that Jesus has done. He's raised a little girl from the dead. And when he did so, he merely spoke the words, little girl... I say to you, arise. And then she did. It seems like as we read Jesus' healing activities in the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't need any help from anyone or from anything in order to accomplish his miracles. Moreover, it seems that Jesus, being God of the universe, as his miracles attest to, probably knows what most any average scientist knows today that there's nothing special about saliva and its ability to heal. 
Therefore, it seems like the only other real reason why Jesus would use spit and do all of these things that he's doing today is so that they would serve as a tactile and visual aid to the faith of the man who's being healed. This man is deaf. He does not have full use of his senses. When Jesus would normally speak and communicate his healing activities and a normal person would hear them, this man does not have the ability to do so. It seems as if Jesus, Jesus is accessing those sensations with this, which this man does have access to in order to aid in his faith. We all appreciate signs and symbols and the way that they serve us and undergird our faith and encourage our faith. And if you think about it, God giving people things to taste and to smell and to touch and to see as an encouragement in their faith is nothing new. When you look at the Passover in the Old Testament, or whether you look at the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, you see that God is giving us aids to our faith. We're supposed to believe in this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, but we also get to touch the bread. We get to smell the bread. We get to taste the bread. Same thing with the wine. When we sip the wine and eat the bread, we are reminded with our physical senses of the spiritual realities of our faith. You know, in many churches, when Christians receive the benediction, they stand at the end and lift their hands. And they're not doing that because they actually believe that physically they're going to receive something that's being spoken to them. They do it because they realize that it's symbolic of what is happening spiritually. It's a physical representation of what cannot be seen. It's as if this physical display acts as a connective tissue like tendons connect bone to muscle. If you've ever tried to learn a second language before, Greek, Spanish, Italian, German, you know that uh, vocabulary is incredibly important. And no matter how tedious it is, you have to learn the vocabulary. Well, if you've ever tried to learn vocabulary for a second language, you know that one of the things that helps you immensely is to not just say the word in your head, but to speak it out loud. So that you're not just thinking it, but you're also saying it, and then you're hearing it at the same time. When we learned Spanish in language school in southern Peru, we had books that we would read, and if the word was zanahoria, which is carrot, we would have a picture of a carrot there. And that visual aid would help me connect the word and cement it into my mind. One Spanish teacher told me, if you ever have to remember something that you can touch, touch it while you're trying to remember it. So if you're going to remember the Spanish word for arm, touch your arm every time you say the word brazo. Brazo, arm, brazo, arm. And the reason why is because the physical aids the mental. And the physical also aids the spiritual. So how kind is it of Jesus to offer these tactile and visual, these sensory aids to this man as he offers him up his healing. It's incredibly generous. But Jesus isn't just being generous and kind. He's also exercising great wisdom here. You see, when Jesus heals this man, he does it privately. Look back at verse 33 again. 
And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. I think that one of the reasons that Jesus does so, the reason why he removes him from the crowds, is so that the crowds won't misunderstand his display. It's very likely that a crowd that might have already viewed Jesus as simply a miracle worker would misinterpret the things that Jesus is doing for this man as he heals him. So as Jesus would lick his fingers, they might understand that to be the pomp and ceremony of a person who's preparing to administer the special ointment to the person. As Jesus sighs deeply, they might have thought, okay, he's getting ready. He's really going to do the magic thing now that all these wonder workers do. As Jesus gets ready to say the word, ephaphtha, they might have thought, ah, oh, there's the magical word that the, that the wonder worker is going to say when he heals a person. So in an effort to aid this man's faith, but also to protect the crowd from their own ignorance, Jesus does all of this in seclusion. Now, before we move on to what the crowd's reaction is to this healing after they encounter the deaf man who can now hear and speak, we should consider something that we see both in today's parable and in the parable from last week. In both of these accounts, we see someone being healed at the request of someone else. We see one person bringing another person to Jesus in faith. From the Syrophoenician Gentile woman from last week, we saw that she brought her sick child to Jesus in faith so that he might heal her. And then Jesus does that. He responds to her faith and he heals her child. In today's account, in verse 32, we read, And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. The man didn't come on his own accord. These people brought the man. A deaf man is certainly capable of walking by himself. They brought this man to Jesus in faith. And these examples aren't the only one. Do you remember the story earlier from the book of Mark in chapter 5? Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5, where the guy was trying to get to Jesus. Uh, excuse me, they were trying to take a man to Jesus so that he could be healed, the paralytic man, but they couldn't get to him because there were so, so many people in the house. And so he ripped open the roof and let the man down through the roof so that the man could have access to Jesus. Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now what's interesting here is that Jesus does not say to them, excuse me, Jesus does not say to the man, I see your faith, Mr. Paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus says, their faith. Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, so I think it's good, right, and true to us for us to say that at times, and for his own reasons, and at his own discretion, Jesus honors the faithful requests of those who bring people to him in need. At his own discretion, and for his own reasons, Jesus honors the faith of those who bring people to him in need. I'm not saying that your non-Christian mother will be saved if you pray for her. I'm not saying that your non-Christian mother will be saved if you have faith. What I am saying is that your non-Christian mother, father, uncle, brother, whatever friend can be saved by Jesus 
And he might use you bringing that person to him in faith as the means of accomplishing that salvation. I'm not saying that if you believe that Jesus can heal your sick grandpa, that he absolutely will. But what I am saying is that Jesus listens to the requests of those who bring others to him in great need. I'm not saying that we can presume upon the miracle-working power of God as if there's a one-for-one exchange. But I am saying that you can approach him in desperation, and perhaps he will grant you mercy, and mercy to someone else. This is one of the reasons why we do intercessory prayer every week in this church. Maybe you don't notice it, but whenever we do the pastoral prayer, what we're doing as pastors is we are standing up here and asking God to do something on our behalf and on the behalf of others. So when we pray for the persecuted, we are coming to Jesus desperately on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters, asking that he would do them good. When we go to Jesus in prayer about missions and missions work that's going on all over the world, we're taking the work of the missionaries and missionaries to Jesus in desperation, asking that he would do them good. When we pray for members of this church and families in this church and needs in this church and finances in this church, we are going to Jesus in desperation on behalf of someone else asking that he would do them good. This this thing that you see here where people come to Jesus in desperation on behalf of someone else is something that's played out in the life of every faithful prayer. We're all asking God to do something for someone else in faith when we pray and we intercede on their behalf. So the question for application then is, are you taking the needs of those you love to Jesus? I know Jesus isn't physically here now, but that doesn't mean that you can't take that person to Jesus in prayer. God delights to have his children take needs to him. He glorifies his name in answering prayers. Are you going to him on behalf of perhaps your brother who's really struggling to get his life back on track? Who can't quite make it work? Are you desperate in prayer as you pray for that man? Are you asking Jesus to work a miracle of conversion in your family member's life who may be lost? Why not take them to Jesus in prayer? Was your prayer not answered the first time, or the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time? Keep pressing. If you remember last week, the Syrophoenician woman, the first time she approached Jesus and asked Jesus to heal her daughter, she got shut down. Jesus said, I'm not going to give to you what I should give to the children. But she was resolute, and she kept on pushing and pursuing, and God answered her prayers. Jesus responded to her persistent faith. If you remember the story of the paralytic from Mark 1 that we just got through talking about, they tried to gain access to Jesus, but they couldn't because of how many people were in there, so they tore the roof of the place off to get the man down there. They hit an obstacle in one way, and they found another way. Maybe Jesus hasn't answered your first prayer or your second prayer or your third prayer, but he might answer your 500th prayer. Why does he choose to answer the 500th prayer and not the first prayer? I don't know. I'll ask him that when I get to heaven. But I've been a Christian long enough to know that God tends to answer the 500th prayer more often than he answers the first prayer. 
And he's not glorified any less because of that. As a matter of fact, I think God is more glorified when we continue to trust in him, even though we have good fleshly reasons not to. One of the great figures of the early church was Augustine, which we're going to be talking about in Sunday school coming up. And Augustine was known as the son of tears. The son of tears. And that was because his mother prayed for him incessantly. You see, Augustine was not a Christian, but his mother was. And Augustine fled the faith, and he went into paganism and pagan philosophy. Later, after Augustine's conversion, he spoke of his mother's prayer life to God like this. Almost nine years passed. Nine years. Nine years. In which I wallowed in the mire of the deep pit, in the darkness of falsehood. All which time that chaste, godly, and sober widow, my mother, ceased not at all hours of her devotions to bewail my case unto you, Father. But Augustine's mother, Monica, was not content to pray only for her son. One author wrote of her efforts and says this, Finally, she went to the bishop, a devout man who knew the scriptures inside and out, and asked him to talk to Augustine and to refute his errors. Well, the bishop refused to do that because Augustine had gained quite a reputation for being a debater. But his mother was not satisfied with his bishop's refusal. So she continued to beg the bishop and plead with him through rivers of tears. And finally, wearied by her tenacity, but at the same time moved by the ache in her soul for her son, the bishop said, Go, leave me alone. Live on as you are living. It is not possible that that son of such tears should be lost. And then finally, the author tells us, the son of such tears continued to run from his mother and from God. And then one day, Augustine listened to Ambrose, the bishop of Milan. Exhausted by the years of running, convicted and broken, he turned to embrace Jesus. How long should you pray for your lost child, your lost brother or sister, aunt, uncle? How many times should you pray for physical healing? As many times as it takes. And you should know that ultimately God may not answer your prayer. Because in some way you're suffering and your prayers may glorify Him more in that respect. When I think about this, this theme of going to others, going to Jesus on behalf of others, I think about Job, who was famous for the way that he daily offered sacrifices for his children and for their souls. And I'm deeply convicted of my lackluster prayer life for my children and for their souls. Even this morning in this service, I saw a hint of rebellion in my daughter. And for some reason, my first reaction to that is to think, how can I fix that rather than going to God and asking Jesus to fix that? I can say that the general pattern we see in Scripture should encourage us and empower us to approach Jesus in faith for the good of our friends and our family members and this church. 
Now, the good that we see done to the man in today's text is that his ears are open and his tongue is loose and he's able to speak plainly. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save... Oh, sorry. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And then Jesus does what he does everywhere else in the Gospel of Mark with one exception. He commands everyone who sees this result of this miracle to be silent. Look at verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. And as is par for the course, the people do not obey Jesus' command. Look at the second half of verse 36. The more zealously, excuse me, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now the text says that this crowd, the crowd that Jesus probably brought this healed man out to that observed his healing, it says that they proclaimed this healing, which is just another word for preach. They preached it. They observed the mighty wonder-working power of Jesus, and they were blown away by it. Look at verse 37. It says, and they were astonished beyond measure. Astonished beyond measure. So in response to this power of God, the people were amazed and proclaimed his mighty deeds. This reminds me of the first uh, little while after I got saved. I mean, he powerfully saved me. And my first response, my first reaction was to go around preaching the power of God to anyone and to everyone who would listen. I had no idea what I was doing. I had a very, 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 very rudimentary understanding of the gospel. I mean, you know, like, I was a sinner, Jesus Christ saved me, he can save you too. That was it. But I went around saying that to anyone and everyone who would listen. If a, an animal would stop in my path long enough, I was half inclined to try to evangelize it, you know. I was telling people after I got saved that I thought were Christians, I, I, would, I was plotting and scheming on ways that I could go around proclaiming the amazing and awful power of God and salvation. I was saying stuff like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into town. We're going to get on the top of that jacks, and we're going to preach the gospel to anybody and everybody who walks by. It didn't happen. But that was the plan, and that's what I wanted to do. In response to observing God's power, all I wanted to do was to proclaim it. I can imagine Jesus telling me, shh, don't say anything, and I'd be like, stop, I have to. And whenever we tell of God's mighty deeds, when we boast of the way that God does everything well, like verse 37 says, we're simply imitating God himself. In Genesis 1.31 we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God the artist is creating the canvas on the canvas of creation. Plants and animals and human beings, setting all the stars in their places, laying valleys low, raising mountains high. And as he creates, he steps back and he says, it's good. Unlike fallen artists who should probably be a little bit slower to praise their own works, God's works are perfect. And so it makes sense that he praises his own works. And whenever we say something like what we read in verse 37, saying he has done all things well, all we're really doing is just echoing God's praises back to him. One of the questions that we should do well, we would do well to ask here is this. 
Why were the people so amazed? Why were they so amazed? I mean, verse 27 says that they were astonished. Didn't the people come to Jesus for a healing? Isn't that what this whole thing was about? They heard that a miracle worker was back in town. They knew a guy who needed a miracle, and they were like, wow, what perfect timing. Let's take this guy who needs a miracle to this mighty miracle worker. Well, then why are they so impressed? Why are they so blown away? Didn't they expect this in the first place? Well, I think the answer to that is simple. They were expecting a miracle worker. But what they found was God himself. Whether we're talking about ancient wonder workers or modern brujos in the jungle or your local homeopathic guru, the thing that most of them have in common is that they have most of their followers in spite of their ability to heal, not because of it. That is to say, most of them don't possess any real ability to bring about any kind of real healing. And so the really surprising thing is that anybody follows them at all. Although a certain essential oil may help with one or two issues that you may have, the vast majority of them don't do anything other than empty your pockets. Although chiropractics can be helpful at times, the vast majority of what they do is just temporary relief that doesn't actually fix the underlying skeletal issue. Although Xanax may curb your anxiety for a little while, it does not deal with the heart issues that underlie your, ang your anxiety problems. The peace that some people feel from activities like meditation usually dissipates the second that they stand up and their feet stop feeling asleep. More often than not, the cures that these wonder workers promise are fleeting. Quite often, they're merely a placebo effect. But more often than not, they are just not really anything at all. There's no true healing taking place. And I think one of the reasons why the people are shocked as they encounter Jesus and this miracle-working power is because they encounter a genuine power, unlike anything that they've ever known before. They're full of miracle workers who kind of do these half-miracles and who promise healing but never really see it fulfilled. But here they encounter in Jesus a power that can actually heal. The kind of miracles that Jesus performs here and in other places, they don't have to be verified. You know, the man's hand was withered, and now it's not withered anymore. That person was deaf and couldn't speak. Now they can hear and communicate. That person was blind, and now they see. He had leprosy. His nose was falling off. Now he's normal. She was dead. Now she's alive. What kind of miracle worker has the power to work miracles like this? And the answer today, as it has been through the early half of Mark and as it will continue to be through the rest of Mark, is that only God has the power to do these kinds of miracles. And brothers and sisters, we would do very well to be on guard against those who claim to be able to kind of work the, to be able, who claim to be able to work the same kind of miracles that we see Jesus working in today's text, that the Bible is clear to say that only God can do. So many charlatans go around waving the banner of Christ, 
claiming to be able to do the sorts of things that Jesus does in today's text. But how many of them actually do it? They use the name of Jesus Christ like a magical talisman, like a witch doctor might use as their special magic word whenever they conduct their pseudo-miracle. They do their witch doctor dances. They recite their scriptural incantations. And they claim that they have worked mighty deeds and wonders. But my question is simply this. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Where's the person who was dead and who is now alive? Where's the person who lost a leg and who now has a leg again? Famous wolf in sheep's clothing, Benny Hinn, has claimed to heal millions and millions of people. He's even claimed to be able to raise men from the grave. And yet there's not a single shred of evidence to verify any of these claims. There was a CBC show in 2006 entitled The Fifth Estate. And the show was basically a bunch of people got into the inner workings of Benny Hinn's healing ministry. They planted cameras, they built relationships, developed connections, observed practices, gathered information. And what they found is what people who know the truth about much of what we see in the church today already knew. That it was fake. That it was staged. They saw people being planted in the audience who actually worked for him and his organization, who at an altar call would begin to go forward so that everyone else would be drawn in after them. They saw the seriously ill being weeded out from the packs and sent to the back of the, uh, of the, of the meeting, of the gathering, so that they never made it to the front. If you came up in a wheelchair with a serious injury, if you had cancer, if you had some kind of injury that couldn't be faked to be healed, you were kept in the back. But people with injuries like migraines, back pain, vision problems, things like fibromyalgia, well, they were all allowed to go to the front for healing. Because it's easy to say, I suffer from migraines and now I don't. But a person who's in stage four cancer, who's about to die because of their cancer, or if you can't heal that, it can't be faked. And unlike Jesus, who never had a place to rest his head, Benny Hinn and other preachers like him live in million-dollar mansions, fly private jets, have their own personal private zoos. While Jesus is busy ordering those whom he heals to be silent, they're trying to get as many cameras on the spectacle as possible. They're trying to broadcast their deeds to the world. Whether it's Benny Hinn or Reinhard Bonnke or some other wolf who is now coming up on the scene, we should be on guard against such modern-day wonder workers who claim to be able to have these powers but who give us no reason to believe it. These men and women use the name of Jesus for their own shameful personal gain. And in the process, they hurt millions of people who are really seriously in need, physically in need and spiritually in need. Imagine that you're a 16-year-old boy and you are handicapped from the waist down 
and you got saved. And now your soul is healed, but your legs still don't work. And everyone's telling you, well, if you had enough faith, you'd be able to get up off of those crutches. But you don't have enough faith, and you're, you're riddled by guilt. You're racked with shame. But good news, Benny Hinn's coming to town. Don't worry, he has enough faith to heal me. The day gets closer, you get more excited, you buy your tickets, you make your way to the tent, and as you hand your ticket to the man at the door, he directs you to the side of the Colosseum, the stadium, the tent. And as you look down in the direction where he's sending you to go sit, you see a bunch of other people who are truly injured and broken and unwell like you. And so you sit at the back of this meeting, waiting for the chance to go up to this man and be healed. But that chance never comes because they're not going to let you come up to the front because he can't heal you. This is an offense to the gospel. It is a shame to the name of Jesus Christ. It is sinful and wrong. God can't heal us. Even today. But to expect that he has to heal us is idolatry. Not Christianity. He has healed us by his stripes is a scripture reference that refers to your spiritual healing, not your physical healing. The thing that Jesus Christ came to rescue you from is your spiritual sickness, not your physical sickness. If he does heal you physically, it's because he's kind and he loves you. But that is not something that he has promised to you this side of heaven. Ultimately, the physical miracles that Jesus performed were meant to point to spiritual realities. Shortly after this account, in the next chapter of Mark, Jesus asked the disciples this question. He says, Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? Jesus is saying, are you deaf? Jesus is the one who opens up our spiritual ears so that we may hear. Not just our physical ears. Now, Mark does something interesting in this account. He tells us what the people say as they go around proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. He says that the people say of Jesus, quote, He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, the word that Jesus uses here to describe the condition of deaf men, excuse me, that the people use here when they say the word deaf, is only found in one other place in your Bible. That's in Isaiah chapter 35. And in that scripture we read this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This was the text that was pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the great Savior of Israel. Isn't it ironic that these Gentiles, these people who don't know God, as they go around proclaiming Him, are actually quoting Scripture back to Him. They're actually quoting Old Testament prophecies about Christ, having never read the Old Testament before. 
the really ironic thing about all of this is that the disciples who have been with Jesus, who have seen all of his healing activity up to this point, are not the ones to confess his identity. Like the man with physical deafness, the disciples seem to have spiritual deafness, as do most of the Jews that Jesus encounters. But Jesus isn't going to leave them that way. One day, very soon in the Gospel of Mark, Peter is going to confess the truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus asked Peter this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And when he says that, it's obvious that his ears have been opened to the truth. And he is able to speak because his tongue has been loosed to be able to confess. But even then, Jesus says to him, good job, but you didn't come up with this on your own. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. My Father in heaven put his fingers in your ears and unstopped your ears so that you could hear the truth about my identity. Are your ears deaf this morning? Not physically, but spiritually. Have you even stopped to consider that? None of us really considers the fact that we might be deaf to the truth. We like to think that we're all very objective and that if truth came along, if it crossed our path, we'd obviously recognize it. None of us think that there's something in our hearts or in our minds that's blocking us from receiving the truth of God. The Bible is clear that your heart may in fact be hard to the truth. If that's so, I want to invite you this morning to ask God to open the ears of your heart. To ask God to use his miracle working power to show you the truth. The truth about himself and the truth about who you are and the truth about where you stand in relation to God. One of the hard things about this whole process is that unless God unstops a man's ears, they will not be unstopped. He'll never hear the words of Jesus. It'll be as if every gospel presentation or every sermon that this person hears will be with the mute button on. Unless God opens the eyes to see and unstops the ear, every gospel proclamation will be like a book being read by a person who's blind. So what I want to do now is I want to go to God in prayer for you and ask God to unstop your ears. If you're a Christian, maybe you think this prayer doesn't apply to you. You think, I'm good, I'm a Christian. Brothers and sisters, you should know that our hearts can grow increasingly hard even as Christians. We should pray that God would protect us from that, that we would be supple to the truth of his word as we hear it. More than that, I'm sure you have friends and neighbors and family members, some of whom you probably saw last Thursday at Thanksgiving, who don't know the Lord, who are lost and dead in sin. As I pray, maybe pray with me and think of those members that you know who need to be saved. Let's end there. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of wonder. You alone do all wondrous things. 
And so, having experienced and tasted of your power, Father, as you saved us, as you used that power to raise us from our symbolic graves, we come now before you in faith and ask that you would do the same in this room. If anyone here doesn't know you, Father, and who is deaf to your truth, I pray that you would unstop their ears, that you would open their eyes, that you would give them the ability to see and to taste your goodness, that they would see the folly of their sin, and that they would turn from it and turn from you. For our lost friends and family members, we want to bring them before you in faith, in desperation, asking that you would glorify your name by healing them spiritually. We also ask for the physically ill among us, that you would heal them. Just because you don't have to doesn't mean that you don't want to, Father. And so we ask in faith that you would heal those among us who are suffering from physical maladies and ailments. That you would glorify your name by showing yourself as supreme over sickness. Father, we know that one day you will show yourself finally and ultimately greater than the effects of the fall. We know that one day every tear will be wiped away and that all sickness and death and suffering and sin and pain will disappear and you and your glory will reign supreme. We pray that you would give us the faith to persevere until that day. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.